Gracious God, we give you thanks that we do not have to travel up the mountain to meet you, but that you come down to meet us where we are. We pray that your Holy Spirit might shine through these words and we might see the glow of your face. Amen. Today's scripture passage is Moses' second trip down the mountain, Mount Sinai. Here he comes with two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments tucked underneath his arms. Even more, though, it says, his face shines. Moses comes down the mountain glowing brightly with the light of the divine. He spent 40 days and 40 nights in God's radioactive presence, talking with God as one speaks to a friend, as the previous chapter puts it, and the result is this holy afterglow. But when he makes it to the bottom of the mountain, people aren't simply taken aback. They don't say, well, that's weird. They aren't simply surprised. They are afraid, it says. And actually, they're afraid for good reason. The Israelites, Moses' people, are afraid because it's their fault that Moses had to go up the mountain that second time. The tablets he's carrying are backup copies, so to speak, because Moses smashed the first set. He smashed them in rage because when he came down the mountain that first time, he saw the people worshipping a statue of a calf made out of gold, the golden calf, if you will. The first commandment that was on those original tablets says something like, you shall have no other gods before me. And lo and behold, the first thing he sees are his people in the midst of a drunken orgy parading around this finely crafted idol taking another god before the true god. So. You know, people bad. Moses mad. Moses smash. They're terrified of Moses because they screwed up. After all, if this people can't keep one commandment while Moses' back is turned for six weeks, how can they be expected to keep another nine for the rest of their lives? So no doubt, when they see Moses coming down the mountain this second time, his face all lit up, new tablets in hand, they assume that he's been kindled with God's own righteous fury to lay down the law, so to speak. Oh, do we already have this picture of how I picture Moses? <laughs> I imagine that he looks something like Ghost Rider. All studded leather and flaming skull ready for vengeance. We can go to the next slide. After that, it was just, there's your pop culture dose for the day. <laughs> um, so it's terrifying. The light from Moses' face is basically exposing the truth. According to the text, they're guilty. According to the story, they deserve punishment. So no wonder... They're terrified. 
The people are guilty and they react like any of us might when we're confronted, when we're found out. Our reaction is always fear. The fear that plays out in all sorts of different ways. There's fear that leads to angry defensiveness, maybe even outright, outright denial of wrongdoing. There's the fear that leads to flight, escape, running away as fast as we can to avoid the consequences. There's equivocation, and this is the one that I like the least. That's to say, trying to explain or downplay what we've done. You know, no dad, it's actually okay, is a phrase my kids use all the time. One that drives me crazy when it's not actually okay. Or maybe even rushing to the fear that drives us to rush to say, I'm sorry to try to make our pro the problem in our own guilt disappear in the rearview mirror as soon as possible. But no matter what it is, no matter how it presents itself, our reaction is always fear. Like the Pink Floyd song says, we're threatened by shadows at night and exposed in the light. Fearing the light of being found out. Fearing consequences, fearing punishment, fearing loss, pain, whether we believe in God or not. It's the way that we operate. So in the light of Moses' face, all the Israelites' wrongdoing is brought to light. A light's flicked on, exposing the broken places in their lives, so the people expect punishment. The people expect punishment, it's the natural thing, it's the obvious thing, but punishment isn't what they get. When Moses arrives back down the mountain, face lit up, the people are terrified, but instead of raining down fire on them, he simply and straightforwardly gathers the elders together. Even Aaron, the ringleader, the golden calf craftsman, who I just love that part, he's like, I don't know how it happened, Moses, we just put all this gold in the fire and boom, golden calf came out. Even, even Aaron. He speaks with them, it says, I mean, it doesn't say anything about the conversation they have. But you can imagine terror in their eyes turning to relief, maybe even joy, because the next thing happens is that the elders gather the people together, and instead of holding a public flogging, Moses holds a class on the commandments, the very same commandments that they broke. Like after this whole ordeal, the outcome is that they sit in a circle and sing kumbaya and learn the way of life that leads to life again at Moses' feet. And it makes you wonder, how does that happen? I mean, one thing they don't know is that behind the scenes, when Moses was up on the mountain, God was ready to smote them real good. Moses wasn't the only one who was mad at them at all. God pretty much wrote them off as a stiff-necked people, meaning they were stubborn like an ox that refused to turn, when, turn its neck when directed. So God was all like, let me at them. I'm going to destroy them. But somehow Moses talked God out of it, and I mean, which is maybe enough for a whole other sermon, 
but we'll leave that question to the end. But Moses simply reminded God of God's past mercies. Moses reminded God of his love to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest, even though, even in the face of all those things that those people had done. And in response, God revealed God's own identity as Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate one, the gracious one, the abundantly forgiving one, the one brimming with loving kindness. That's who God says God is in response. So regardless of this conversation between Moses and God, the outcome is that they expect punishment, but get loving kindness. They get forgiveness. It's not that God simply says, no biggie, but God sees the truth. God sees them for who they are. God sees what they've done. He sees that they're guilty, they're deserving punishment. That doesn't change, but the thing is that God forgives. God shows mercy. God's love and kindness know no bounds. That's who God is. And really, this is the definition of what we call grace. It's the definition of that word we throw around so often here and often don't understand because grace is something that people have a hard time understanding. Even Christians, sometimes especially Christians, are people who don't understand grace. Liberals tend to see grace as downplaying wrongdoing, being nice, and lowering the bar. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, conservatives tend to see grace as God being nice to us until we have a conversion experience, but then watch out. Don't slip up, don't start to backsliding, or else. But grace is neither of these things. Grace is what the Israelites ultimately get at the bottom of the mountain. God's glory God's presence is what shines through the glowing face of Moses. What we see here is that the light that shines forth from Moses' face, yes, reveals their brokenness, their sin causing them to fear, but this light isn't just the light of condemnation or judgment. This light is the light that shines brightly. It's God's light of love and forgiveness. It's like cauterizing a wound, using a hot iron to stop the bleeding. That initial fear, that initial discomfort, that terror in the truth coming out is ultimately sealed, healed, and forgiven in God's forgiveness. In that light, they set out to learn God's way again. That's Moses holding brand new copies of the Ten Commandments. Grace is falling short. It's screwing up. It's to be completely guilty. Deserving every punishment coming our way. 
but in the end, through no merit or action of our own, being infinitely forgiven. Being set right with the source of all things and with our fellow creatures. Grace is the face that sees us in our fullness, warts and all, all the darkness that resides in us, what we've done, and in spite of it all, shines forth with unconditional love and forgiveness. That's what grace is. That's what grace is. And it's the only thing that can really change us. It's the only thing that does change us and change other people. Rod Rosenblatt, a Lutheran theologian, tells the true story of wrecking his father's Buick 8 when he was 16 years old. He was drunk, and his car was full of friends who were drunk too. Calling his father from the police station, his father asked him if he was all right. Then he told his dad what happened and that he was drunk. When he got home that night, he wept and wept in his father's study, fearing and expecting his father's wrath. But when it was over, his dad said one thing. How about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? Rod says that it was this moment that he began to believe in God. He finally understood the meaning of grace. It became real. And of course, every time he tells his story, it always upsets a few people in the audience. Your dad let you get away with that. He didn't punish you at all, they always say. And Rod says, no. And he adds the following. Do you think I didn't know what I'd done? Do you think it was not the most painful moment of my whole life up to that point? Do you think the law wasn't cutting me down to nothing? That is the strange, even offensive thing called grace. Like the Israelites crashing and burning at the base of Mount Sinai, quaking in fear at a pile of crushed commandments, Rosenblatt recoiled in painful fear at the crushed Buick and the prospect of his father's judgment. Like the Israelites, he assumed retribution, punishment, but like Moses, God's glory shone forth from his father's face. And together, they started over. How about I get you a new set of commandments? Everything changed for Rosenblatt that day. He became a new person. And that's grace. Grace is the glory of God's mercy shining forth in the faiths of Moses, bleaching out the past misdeeds of his people. Grace is most fully revealed 
in the light shining forth in the face of Jesus Christ. His love for, his, for the unlovable, his mercy for the wretched, hung up on the cross for the sake of not good people, but sinners, forgiving the very people who done it. Grace is the same forgiveness reflecting through the face of a father's love to a broken and defeated son. Grace is the face that sees us and knows us in our entirety. The face that catches us in the act and yet glows with love and mercy even in our deepest shame. In spite of all of our golden idols, in spite of all our little shortcomings, in our great betrayals, we know we're loved and forgiven exactly as we are. Again and again and again. I'd hate to ruin the rest of the Bible for you, but this just keeps happening and happening and happening and happening. And yet, sending, setting us shining forward on a new path. Because according to the Bible, this is the only thing that will change us. Not the grimace of guilt, not the scowl of condemnation, not more punishment, not harder rules, but the beautiful, shining face of grace. So, friends, let's all together stand, not literally stand, but stand tall in the light of God's glory. Though it may hurt our eyes at first because we're used to that dull gray of judgment. Let's all stand together in the full knowledge of our guilt, our fallibility, and our shame and bask in the beautiful light. Let's all stand together without fear because we know we've seen the human face of grace. And because of that, we can hope and pray for the light of Christ, that light that shines in the face of the risen Lord to shine in and through our own faces. So we can see others for who they are and extend the same mercy that's been extended to us trusting all the way that through it God will do the same. Because that's what grace is. And that's what grace does. Thank God for amazing grace. Amen.